Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So have you uh, ever heard of SAM, the Serve America movement, S-A-M? One of its principal advocates is attorney, former Republican, former member of Congress, Republican member of Congress in Florida's 13th District, and the current chairman of Save America movement, SAM, David Jolly. Join Sam.org is their website. David Jolly FL is his Twitter handle. Sam for us is the uh, Twitter handle for, for Sam. And uh, David Jolly, welcome to the program. Nice to have you with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Thank you. I have been looking for a long time for a Republican to have this conversation with. I realize you're no longer a Republican, but you know you were there. You know, and I want to hear about Sam and, and, and what you're doing. Because we have first-past-the-post winner-take-all elections, I mean, this was the god-awful yeah, realization that James Madison came to that led to Federalist Number 10. And John Stuart Mill didn't really introduce proportional representation until I think it was 1849, was it, when On Liberty was published? <laughs> All your later democracies have proportional representation, but, you know, there's seven countries in the world that don't. We're one of them. A couple of them, New Zealand and Australia, have solved that problem with instant runoff voting, but but we're basically stuck with a two-party system. So your party is going to have to replace the Republican Party if it's going to be a major player, ultimately, if it's going to be a major player in American politics. And what I have been unable to figure out is if the Republican Party was to be reinvented by people like yourself of goodwill, you and I probably disagree on a lot of topics, but there's no doubt in my mind that you're a man of some integrity. If the Republican Party is to be replaced by such people, or my dad, who called himself an Eisenhower Republican until the day he died in 2006, if that's the case, what are the issues that that new Republican Party, for that matter, the Sam Party, although you're pitching this to Democrats as well as Republicans, what would be the issues that they would stand for? Where would they stand on things like the minimum wage or Social Security or Medicare yeah. for all or how we do a national health care system or where the commons begins and ends or whether the you know net neutrality? I mean, there's some very, very real issues here where there's a clear yeah. partisan divide. Feel free. Go at any of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot to unpack there, Tom. But first, let me let me say electoral reform, the idea of ranked choice voting, of multi-member districts, of open primaries, gerrymandering reform. All those electoral reform ideas 
are a very close brethren of the new party movement. You're exactly right. To see a new party emerge with viability requires electoral reforms. The good news is in some states we're seeing those electoral reforms now. So we're able to test the viability of a new party movement. But but your question about today's Republican Party is actually interesting because it's a good intro to the Serve America movement to Sam. I don't think we need a new Republican Party. I don't think we need a new center-right party. Frankly, I think Republicans and conservatives and center-right voters, they own where they are now. They're responsible for where they are now, and they have the association that they've created within the party over the past Except they're not center-right, David. Let's be upfront about this. I'm forgetting the name right off the top of my head of this movement. I wrote an op-ed about it yesterday, though, over at HartmanReport.com. You know, an international group, a research group put together by Harvard University and University of Sydney in Australia looked at over a thousand political parties in over 170 countries, as I recall, and concluded that while the Democratic Party is right smack in the middle with similar center-left parties in Canada and across Western Europe, Australia, etc., The American Republican Party bears no resemblance to conservative parties in any of those countries and most closely resembles Fidesz, Viktor Orban's party in Hungary, or the uh, TPK, whatever it is, Erdogan's party. I mean, basically has become a fascist party. I would suggest it's not an ideological party. I mean, I would come at it from a totally different angle, which is it's not a party that values ideology. It's a party that has certain conscriptive value sets, if you will, and value is probably exactly the opposite of the word I should use in this case. But right, you have to be willing to undermine democracy. You have to be willing to cut people out from participating in democracy. You have to be okay with growing economic inequality. All of these metrics of today's Republican Party are tools for how they hang on to power. It is not an ideological party. So I don't try to actually place it on the left-right spectrum as much as people often try to do, but it is the home of people who find them themselves in the United States today, somewhere right of center to far right of center. But here's the critical thing. There's a lot of Republicans saying we need to save the Republican Party. We need to start a new center right party. I think that is actually repeating the failure point of both major parties, which is the suggestion that somehow we're going to pick a dot on the left right ideological spectrum and expect this whole coalition of people to join on a shared ideology. Tom, you started by saying you and I probably disagree on a lot. I don't know that that's the case. I'm sure there's a lot we disagree on, but I bet there's a lot we actually agree on because my politics are all over the left-right spectrum. And so neither major party is a home to me. And so what Serve America movement's doing is saying, look, instead of trying to require a shared ideology in terms of our political affiliations— What if we actually create a true big tent movement, left to right, left, center, right, wherever your ideology is, God bless you, bring it to the table. What we are going to gather around instead of shared ideology are the shared values and priorities of problem solving, of electoral reform, of transparency, of accountability. The idea that at the end of the day, a lot of people, maybe you identify as an independent, maybe not. But the first thing you want from your government is something that solves health care, solves immigration, solves taxes, and does so in a way that doesn't require this fight over whose dogma is better than the other. We just want solutions. Yeah, and and everything you just described are means to an end, and that end being 
using politics and political positions to solve problems. You know, the transparency and all that. Yes, I'm, I'm totally with you. And we, we need to blow up the Buckley and, and Bilotti decisions and Citizens United, you know, all the damage the Supreme Court has done to our democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But that's process stuff. At the end of the day, either we are, for example, in favor of joining the other 33 OECD countries and providing a national health care system to America that is very low cost or free to Americans, or we're not. And the vast majority of Americans, including Republicans, are in favor of that when it's laid out in a neutral way without buzzwords from Fox News. The same is true of education. We're the only country in the developed world, we're the only OECD country where you can go broke or end up massively in debt just going to college. I mean, obviously there are exceptions if people want to go to real high-end colleges, but, but just going to college. At what point does this party start talking about positions on issues that frankly are popular in both parties on the grassroots level, but not at the level of politicians. And David, we're about 40 seconds away from a hard break. So look, very quickly on issues, neither major party today will grab issues on both sides of the spectrum. We will. On education, we need to dramatically invest more money in public education, but embrace parental choice. It works. And those other leading nations you mentioned are not all left-leading nations. On healthcare, you had people who needed affordability, people who needed access, and people who truly lost their doctor or their plan or their health care costs went up. Democrats spoke to the first two constituencies. Republicans only speak to the third. We need a party that speaks to all three constituencies that brings us on par with leading nations around the world. Sam is the party. The Serve right. America movement. The chairman, David Jolly, attorney, former Republican congressman from Florida. Joinsam.org is the website. And Sam for us on Twitter or David Jolly FL. David, thanks for dropping by. Great talking with you. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks, Tom. I hope someday we can expand a little uh, this conversation. Thank you, David. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. It's time for our National Progressive Town Hall meeting with Congressman Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, representing the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov, and you can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna. And Representative Khanna, welcome back to the program. What's at the top of your list of things you want to share right off the bat? Well, first, Bernie Sanders and I just had an op-ed yesterday in the Washington Post praising President Biden's decision to uh, end the war in Afghanistan and bring back all our troops. That was a uh, a bold position and and a courageous decision from the reports. He overturned even his military brats who wanted to retain counter-terrorism troops there. And he said that will just keep us into conflict. So uh, we really it's going to be a fight on the hill and and we're really going to push to make sure there's support for a full withdrawal and also for an accounting of what the defense contractors there are doing and making sure that's not a military role in any way and that we're starting to to withdraw the contractors second is the infrastructure bill and i'm chairing on april 22nd the chair of the environment subcommittee we're going to advocate full repeal of the fossil fuel subsidies and we have uh, greta thunberg and number of their great expert witnesses testifying in a lot of the environmental groups and want to make sure that that's part of the uh, package uh, that Biden ultimately uh, uh, supports for infrastructure. That is great. Okay, so you want to pick up some phone calls? That would be great. Okay, let's do it. Uh, Zach in North Hollywood, California, you're on the air with Congressman Conant. 
Good morning, guys. Good to be with you again, Ro. Uh, good, good to be. Good to hear from you, Zach. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about language. How important it is for the public Democrats to start using the right or a better form of our language. Uh, the left is a shingle. Uh, the industrial war and weapons complex and the far right hung on us 25 years ago. It's a lie. We are not the left. First of all, we the people are the working class. We are labor. We are the center, not the so-called left. And the few on the far right are terrified. Smart people are going to finally begin to see past their little buzzwords that they pound on day after day, namely the left. And I have a pat answer now for anyone accusing us of upsetting the apple cart, canceling their culture, or displacing white privilege. I just say, can you blame us after the way you've acted for 400 years? Truth or not the truth, that is the modern question, guys. Thank you so much. Well, Zach, I take your your, your point that uh, we should be talking about the working class and uh, making that clear. In fact, I borrowed a, a phrase, Tom, one of your phrases uh, in an interview they asked me. Josh Hawley was apparently saying that the Democrats now have become uh, the corporate party because corporations are standing up for uh, voting rights and uh, uh, that our alignment is with corporations and the Republicans are, have become the working class party. So I actually asked, I said to the reporter, the point you made, I said, uh, ask Josh Hawley to tell me one uh, bill, one piece of legislation that the Republicans have led and completed that have that has actually uh, helped uh, working the working class in this country over the last 30 years. And it made it into the article. So I uh, appreciated oh, that. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. We've got to just hammer home that, that this is the party of the working class. Yeah, there you go. Mark, in Sauk City, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman, Congressman Kana. Yeah, I, I heard and, and saw some of Jim Jordan's performance um, against uh, Dr. Fauci, and that it strikes me as ironic that you know Jim Jordan talks about freedom, 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 yet here on the airwaves when... Uh, you know, the FCC limits our freedom as what we can, you know, words we can use. You know, seven, George Carlin's famous seven words can't be used. That when we are frustrated and calling about, you know, behavior like Jim Jordan's, because some of what Carlin would have said on this would have, he would have incorporated most of his words in that, because Jim Jordan is an, is an embarrassment. I mean, that, and what about the freedom for us, the rest of us, not to become infected by people that do not want to wear masks or do not, you know, that... And they have fire code restrictions on, on gatherings and all that. It just, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, that how, and he's talking to his base. I mean, I mean he, it's, it's clearly he's not talking to the rest of the American people. He's not talking to the real issue. He's just simply talking to his base and getting that fired up. And this is the same base that he'll say, oh, that, that uh, you know, what happened on January 6th was just, you know, it was fake and it was Antifa and that, uh, it, it just and he defends somebody like you know Matt Gates who you know that you know apparently it sounds like he was sexually assaulted a 17 year old and that uh, ironic coming from Jim Jordan who failed to protect young men. When so he your was point or question mark in summary? 
Well, I mean, the, the, how do we, how do we, I mean, how do we directly challenge somebody like Jim Jordan? Because he needs to be challenged when he says this stuff. I mean, that that, and call him Got for it. the fool that he is. Thank you. Well, Mark, I, I thought Maxine Waters uh, handled it very well. First of all, he was going over his allotted time, and the rules matter uh, in uh, Congress. And I think she called him out appropriately, saying that his time had expired. Second. The, the, that isn't supposed to be a forum to badger or be belligerent against uh, uh, witnesses, so that he was uh, violating the, uh, the the proper protocol and how you're supposed to conduct yourself in those hearings. And your point on the substance is absolutely uh, correct, that uh, when we're talking about freedom, we're talking about uh, everybody's freedom. And if uh, a very small minority are not wearing masks, that hurts uh, our freedom to go to work, to send our kids to school, to be out uh, on the streets, to go to shop. Uh, and so you're really uh, hurting everyone else's freedom uh, for your own uh, personal preferences. And I, frankly, I think that's a position that is broadly popular. And uh, you could argue that Donald Trump lost re-election for refusal to wear a mask. I mean, it's uh, something that has hurt the Republican Party, and uh, it's mind-boggling to me that they're still uh, doubling down on that. One minute to a break. Bruce in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Quick one for Congressman Khanna. Uh Yes, I have a, a question I haven't heard answered about uh, if uh, campaign tax or campaign donations are tax deductible and PAC donations are tax deductible? And if they are, uh, couldn't they put a limit on how much is deductible? And I, I don't believe even the Supreme Court can uh, get into tax policy that much. So that's what I would like answered. Thank you. Bruce, it's a good question. They're not tax deductible, so you cannot uh, deduct a contribution uh, from your from your taxes. That said, there's still uh, a huge uh, advantage because the the wealthiest Americans, and this is interesting that I think that most of the campaign contribution, when you actually look at the total, comes from a very, very small, less than 1% of the population, and they don't have to worry about the tax deduction. They are perfectly happy to spend that money to get their policies uh, furthered. Yeah, they're mind-bogglingly rich to begin with, plus a lot of it they see as an investment which is uh, incredible. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Congressman Khanna's website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. 
Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Eric in Las Vegas. Hey, Eric, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I want to talk about tax fairness. I have an idea that uh, it's a two-part thing. First off, I think that it would be very helpful if there is only one tax rate for everybody, regardless of how much you make, how much you get, or where you get it, how you make it. It could be cash you found in the street or money you made at your hourly wage, get a paycheck every two weeks, or your salary if you get on... uh, prorated to cover a year's worth, or wherever, capital gains. Uh, One tax rate for everybody, no matter how much you earn, no matter where it comes from. And the second part of that is, except that people at the poverty level and below would be excused from that. The second part is, I don't believe that business should be taxed at all. I think that the people that own the business should be taxed on money that the business makes when they get that money from the business at the same rate that everybody else pays it for whatever they wherever they get the money. First, I do think we ought to have progressive taxation, meaning that if you make a lot more money, you can afford to have uh, a higher rate on uh, on that increased marginal income. But you're right, in my view, that there shouldn't be this distinction between uh, capital gains and uh, ordinary income. I mean, if you just are, have inherited wealth and you have that sitting in a bank account. I don't see why you should pay less tax on that than someone who goes and uh, works a, a full day at a uh, in a construction job uh, or any other job. Uh, in terms of the business, I mean, I do think we have to have a corporate tax. Uh, corporations have been uh, extraordinarily uh, profitable uh, and have far more of a share of income than labor. And uh, taxing that is not going to be uh, anti-competitive. And frankly, it's not going to hurt the stock market much either, as Biden has floated a 28 percent tax and the uh, stock market seems to have baked that in and it's doing fine. So this idea that it's going to hurt our competitiveness, I uh, also don't think has support in the data. Johnny in Lamarck, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. I'm afraid that the way the people around the world are going to interpret the motives of the American government under Biden and the Pentagon in a matter of how we pull out of Afghanistan, the so-called pullout, leaving 18,000 mercenaries behind, along with a handful of uh, covert spies, is going to be compared to the way the Chinese view the freedom fighters in Hong Kong, as well as how they micromanage the uh, Uyghurs in those so-called education camps. In other words, they're going to liken the Americans as being uh, un, uh, not be able to trust anybody, that they feel they have to watch everybody up close because they think that everyone's looking to hammer them down all the time. I, I think we have to give the president uh, credit for actually bull- pulling all the troops uh, out. Uh, there 
It was a large debate whether to keep special operations forces there, whether to have small presence there. And he said, no, it's going to start a war. Now, in terms of the 18,000 contractors, I certainly don't think they're comparable to what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. But I do agree that we shouldn't have them be doing uh, any activity that could any be military or conflict in any in any way. And we should look at how we start to bring them back. It appears that there is a distinction that General McChrystal pointed out to me. This was like more than a decade ago. I was at a, at a meeting in New York City and we were talking privately and he made the comment, we can't kill our way out of Afghanistan. And then he said, there is a difference between winning a war and winning an occupation. Wars are easy to win when you've got a military like ours. Occupations are almost impossible. That was what the British tried to do with North America and India. Occupations almost never work over the long term, and it's crazy for us to do it. Now, I'm paraphrasing from memory, but I'd like your thoughts on that. Brilliant insight and absolutely correct. And that's what uh, morphed uh, from Afghanistan into a war to take out al-Qaeda, take out uh, the uh, government that hosted al-Qaeda because of the attacks on 9-11. And it became the sense of, well, can we reconstruct Afghan society uh, to be democratic and, and, and a liberal democracy? And that hasn't worked. It, hasn't, it didn't work in Afghanistan. It didn't work in Iraq. It hasn't worked in Libya. Uh, it uh, has not worked in uh, wherever we have tried it. Uh, Vietnam. And so I think <laughs> Vietnam, it didn't work in Vietnam. It's, it hasn't worked in trying to, to overthrow uh, Assad or the Iranian regime. I mean, this, this sense that we can go in, throw out a regime, rebuild a society militarily, uh, I think is just uh, practically naive and uh, putting aside all the, the questions of uh, uh, the moral debate. And so uh, having more humility, humility about our military uh, prospects of creating society, I think, is uh, necessary. And that's why I think Biden's decision was so important, because he says, you, you know, we, if we keep small special uh, operation forces there, they're going to be the embers for future conflict. And I actually think his speech is worth reading is sort of a indictment of the theory of forever war. Yeah, it seems to me like the bumper sticker here is we won both wars. We won them in the first few months. We are losing the occupation at, because that's what happens with occupations. And it's time to stop the it's time to end the occupation, not the war. The war was won long, long ago or words to that effect. I don't know. Maybe that's too that's nuanced for the no, average I think American. That's absolutely but, right. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and because you, it's not a. It's not a surrender. I mean, we achieved a lot of the objectives. We got bin Laden. We got al-Qaeda. Uh, the, the point is, that what were we doing for 20 years with all this loss of life? And people say, well, what about women's rights and, and children's rights? And I'm sympathetic to the argument that you want to protect women's rights, but you're not calculating or taking into account all the women and children who are dying, literally uh, thousands of Afghani women and children dying because of the, the, the war. Uh, and our best way the occupation. Of tools. Yeah. yeah. Because of the occupation. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I think it was MSNBC. You talked about uh, the Supreme Court being expanded, which I, I, well, whichever way you want to do it. But anyway, my idea was this. They run, every 20 years they should be run for election, and the, the top, they can be 50 running or even 100 or whatever. But anyway, what I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is the top, if it's 13 or 11, 
they get the job. Now, if anybody passes away or whatever, the next one on that list gets that position for the rest of that term, that, that you know, a 20 year term. It wasn't that would save a lot of taxpayers money and, and argument and, you know, and, you know, how the Senate stuff doing, doing like the people. And I don't think nobody should have a job getting public money anyway and, and permanently have a job. They should retire like anybody else who worked and, and getting taxpayers money. And I just want your opinion. Well, I have a bill for term limits of Supreme Court justices, 18 years. It could be a way forward that isn't as polarizing. After the term on the Supreme Court, uh, they still would have life tenure because that's what the Constitution calls for, better or worse. But they wouldn't be on the Supreme Court. They'd be on a circuit court or a senior status, as judges often take. Uh, And if you had 18-year terms, you would depoliticize these hearings. You wouldn't have every hearing be a life-or-death hearing. a struggle where someone may be on the court for 40, 50 years. So uh, it's in the spirit, I think, of what you're proposing, which is we, we shouldn't have people on these courts uh, for 40, 50 years governing the country. What's your sense of how your colleagues, both Democratic and Republican, are reacting to your proposal? So I think there is, uh, on the Democratic side, a fair amount of uh, optimism for the term limits proposal. It's uh, I did it with Joe Kennedy, who was in Congress last time in Dunbar. And let's see what the president's commission does. That's really going to be telling. Yeah, I think so. I think that's going to be fascinating. Melissa in Bloomfield, Iowa, you are on the air with Congressman Khan. You know, you guys can't expect the Supreme Court to have term limits when you guys can't even agree to term limits for yourselves. Number two, this country needs to stop race baiting. And my question is, with this bill that's coming out, um, please explain to me in this country how you guys plan on doing this high-speed rail when you guys can't even get that accomplished in California with the billions that you spent on it. First of all, you could have term limits for House and Senate members if it was correctly done and open. We to do that. right now. They're called elections. Yeah, and but the Supreme Court. I was going to say the second thing is that the Supreme Court, you don't have elections. That was not the founding intent. When you look at the uh, the the history, the founders thought, okay, someone would be uh, at at the end of their professional careers. Uh, distinguished legal uh, jurists, and then they would do a stint on the Supreme Court as sort of final service to the country. It wasn't expected that people would be gaming the system, putting people on in their 40s uh, to try to be on the court for 50 years. So it's just being uh, abused from the founding intent. On the high-speed rail, uh, look, California is the only state that has tried it. We have uh, the the rail now working from uh, Bakersfield to Modesto. It was probably a mistake to start it there. We should have started it in a different area, but that was a federal requirement uh, to start it there. Uh, but what are we supposed to do? Just throw up our hands and say we, we don't want high-speed rail in this country? I mean, uh, no other state has even uh, tried it. Of course we need high-speed rail. China has 15,000 miles of high-speed rail, and uh, I don't want the United States to, to lose out on our competitiveness. Stewart in Venice, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Khan. Hi, an honor to talk to both of you. Congressman, in 1984, we started taxing Social Security recipients. And at the time, it was uh, geared to just hit the rich, and less than 10% of people paid it. But the form paid tax on their Social Security benefits. But the formula has, was never adjusted for inflation in almost 40 years. So now some very low-income people 
uh, pay, actually pay tax on their Social Security, which is pretty outrageous, I think. And not, and, you know, to, I mean, the whole thing might be outrageous to some as far as paying tax on Social Security. But it's sitting 56, I think, 56 percent of social recipients now pay tax on a portion of their Social Security. I'm just wondering if I, this is a small thing, considering we have the trees and everything else going on in the country. So I apologize for that. But uh, I'm just wondering if any of your tax proposals, uh, record, you know, have, have dealt with this and we'll try and get uh, lower, especially lower-income people a break and, and stop this. I appreciate that point, and I get asked about this, I think, every week now uh, or every other week when I'm on Hartman. And at first I, I add my team look into it and talk to the groups, and they said, well, uh, you needed to fund Social Security. But then Tom last week pointed out that this isn't going to the Social Security Fund. This is just a tax on the general fund. So I have actually asked, Social Security Works and the other team, uh, progressive groups. Why? Why do we need this tax or not? And I'm waiting uh, to get more feedback. So I'm looking into the issue, and uh, we'll be, give you a thoughtful answer once I uh, talk to all the advocacy groups and see why it is that uh, we still have this tax, and if there's if if it's necessary. James in Hollywood, California. You are on the air with Congressman Connor. Greetings, gentlemen. My professor, the smartest man in all media, with whom you're sharing a screen, taught me that Germany started a solar panel on every rooftop. Could you introduce a standalone bill, solar panels on every rooftop bill, based on Germany's bill, and Tom could help you draft a bill, millions of jobs, and help them save the planet? What say you, Congressman? You know, it's a, it's a great idea. I had a very encouraging conversation yesterday with Congressman Northam, who's a Republican from South Carolina, and he's the uh, ranking member on the uh, Environment Subcommittee that I'm the chair of. And he said that he is all for uh, solar energy, and he's all for looking for ways to increase uh, solar energy's adoption, which I, I found refreshing. So uh, it I'm happy to look into what you're proposing, and it actually could be something we finally get a bipartisan movement on. Are you familiar with the uh, German 100,000 panels initiative from 15, 20 years ago? I am not. I, I, they were I, trying I to retire into, yeah. two large nuclear power plants. This was, the, this was the goal, and they needed to get a certain number of houses. And so it was a three-step process. Uh, number one, they went to the banks, and they said, if you will loan money to homeowners to solarize their houses at 2%, we will backstop those loans 100%, so there's no risk to you. Then they went to the power companies and they said, we've done the calculations and the cost to build these two nuclear power plants that they were planning on building, uh, that cost will be seven times what your ratepayers are paying right now over a 10-year period, even though the power plants have a longer than a 10-year lifespan. So we're asking you to buy surplus electricity from these solar panels on these people's homes at seven times the retail rate for a 10-year period. You will have the exact same investment as if you built a nuclear plant, but you will now have a solar infrastructure instead of a nuclear infrastructure. And we will back that too. So they put this into place hoping to put 100,000 rooftops up, which would have replaced those two nukes. They stopped it eventually at several million because the 
power grid couldn't handle all the electricity that was being generated. And now they've wow. upgraded the grid. And now you drive, you take the train from like, uh, I, I always go from Frankfurt to, to Stuttgart, to uh, you know, through Würzburg, you know, east to west. And so you're looking up north and you're looking on the southern slopes of all these houses. And it's like 80% of every house in, in Germany now has solar panels on it. They're generating, uh, last May, they generated a surplus wow. of electricity. They were exporting electricity. It cost the banks nothing. It cost the government nothing. It saved them the cost of building two nuclear power plants. And the guy, I, I spoke at a conference in, in Spain with one of the two German legislators who put this together. This guy, his name was Schmidt. He's now passed away. This was about eight, 10 years ago. He was a national hero. I mean, this program really worked. I'd be glad offline to, to give you more details and, and all that sort of stuff. But that's how I it worked. I would love to. You know, it sounds brilliant, frankly. And maybe we can look into it on this uh, committee, do an actual hearing on it and see if there's some model legislation we could do here. Yeah, plus they created all these jobs in, 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 and they were manufacturing a lot of these solar panels in Germany. They started out having to import them. They created all these jobs installing these things, you know, and, and so it's just, uh, it was a spectacular success. Anyhow, Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. Thank you. Catherine in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. You are on the air with Congressman Kana. I know a lot of people are thinking that Canada has everything for health care, you know, your glasses, your dentures, you know, etc., hearing aids and medications and all of that is covered. It isn't. I mean, it depends on the individual provinces. Like, if you're a rich province, you may have some of those sort of extra benefits, but here in Saskatchewan, we have a basic health care that takes care of your, your hospitalization, your doctors, but your pills, your uh, dental, uh, physiotherapy, all of those things are not covered. So I just, you know, I know Rokana, Mr. Rokana is a, a progressive, and I know I'm hoping eventually he'll be taking Bernie's place maybe, which would be lovely. And uh, I really feel that if you, if you, a person was asking you uh, that only had a bike to provide them with a vehicle, you, would, you wouldn't give them a Rolls Royce right away. So you have to start with the basic things and then see if you can add the other stuff. And that's my comment. Thank you very much. appreciate that. I obviously am not uh, as versed in all the details of the Canadian system as, as you are. What I would say is our first goal should be to expand uh, the existing Medicare for, for everyone. Uh, but then we should be uh, also improving Medicare for some basic things. I mean, one of the uh, fights that will take place in Congress is any savings we get from Medicare negotiation. Uh, Senator Sanders and I and others believe that that should be used to provide seniors with vision, with dental, with hearing. Uh, this isn't providing all the bells and whistles or a Rolls Royce. I mean, this is saying that healthcare should cover getting to go to the dentist if you have a toothache or uh, getting glasses if uh, you don't have proper vision or getting your hearing checked. Uh, and I think you're right to say that we should focus on uh, basic care first, uh, but in this country, we don't have uh, basic care, uh, even under Medicare, it doesn't cover long-term care. And we certainly don't have it uh, for all our citizens. So uh, it's a, a good clarification to not promise, overpromise. Uh, but I do think we can talk about some of the very basics in having Americans, every American having the right to basic health care. 
Laura in Troy, Missouri. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Yeah, hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. Um, I had a question. Um, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, there was talk about um, some of the Congress people giving tours the day before the attack. And I haven't heard anything about it since. And I just wondered, is anybody looking into that or are they just going to let it go? Laura, I, I haven't heard anything in the news either. I do know that there is an investigation, an ongoing investigation, taking, which is being taken very seriously by the Justice Department, by the FBI. Uh, I uh, expect and assume that we will be getting a report of that, and I know that this is high on the speaker's list. So uh, I will continue to be vigilant in the caucus, but... Uh, we will hear something, and it's probably a good thing that it's not being leaked uh, in public until they get all the facts. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Two minutes to the break. Paul, you're on the air. Yes, Tom. I sent you an article, my article on expanding the Supreme Court. I'd like to send it to Congressman Khanna. Uh The point of the article is this, is that just expanding the court really won't do anything. It will be seen as packing, but it's already packed. Once one of the parties has appointed... Uh, the majority of justices, whether that's 5 of 9 or 7 of 13 or 8 of 15, it's already politically packed and hopelessly politically packed when there's more than one justice in the majority because a swing vote is, is, is meaningless. So my idea is this. If you can expand the court to 13 or 15, and my suggestion is 15, you still randomly generate a permutations of nine justices to sit on the bench for any case. And in this case, if you had 15 and you generate, there are 5,005 different permutations of justices that could be drawn nine at a time from a court of 15. The court could be in session all summer long, and we could hear uh, 60% more cases. We could, instead of 130 or 150 cases a year, the court could hear 250 cases a year. And with a nation that's approaching 350 million in the next 10 to 15 years, we have our federal court uh, is back, that's backlogged. And there should be more access access to the constitutional questions that are coming up. But just you could have 100 justices on the court. As soon as one party is appointed 51 justices, it's packed. Paul, please send it in. We'll send it to the uh, commission. I, uh, I think the commission is going to look and study all of the proposals and then look at what's doable uh, in the current environment where you have uh, a very slim uh, majority in the Senate and the House and see if there are any reform proposals that, that can get broad support. Paul's a thoughtful guy. I'll forward his uh, op-ed to you offline. Okay, I'd great. love that. Congressman Rokana, thanks so much for being with us today. It's always great having you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Indeed. Congressman Rokana, you can uh, tweet him at Rep. Rokana. You're listening to Tom Hartman. my rant from HartmanReport.com this morning. You know, we talk about Trump. When is he going to end up in prison? When is he going to be held accountable? We have a long history of Republican presidents committing crimes for which they are never held accountable. And it needs to end. I mean, it just, just absolutely friggin' needs to end. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, oh, by the way, in, our, in the second hour of our program today, the entire hour will be Congressman Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls for the hour on another uh, national town hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. And that'll be in the second hour. Uh, so if you want to talk to Con uh, Congressman Khanna, just, you know, wait until the second hour. But 
Um, the Biden administration just laid this right out in the open yesterday. This this from my rant at HartmanReport.com this morning. Um, it, when the Trump 2016 campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, by the way, who worked for nothing. Remember this? He volunteered his services. Why did he do that? Well, apparently because he was he was he was a Russian agent uh, or working with them. He he was passing top secret internal polling data from the Republican Party about Michigan, about Wisconsin, about Ohio, about Pennsylvania. He was passing that along to Konstantin Kalimnik. We knew that from the Mueller report. What we didn't know is that Konstantin Kalimnik, which we learned yesterday, was just turning around and handing it off to Russian intelligence who are running the troll farms that were pretending to be Americans who were going into Facebook sites and saying, in particular to black people in those swing states, um, but also to, to you know, Berniecrats in those states, ah, don't bother voting for Hillary. Look at this. Here's all these reasons not even to show up at the polls. And it worked. You know, as Mark Pocan has pointed out on this program numerous times, there, were, there was like, you know, a couple hundred thousand fewer voters, Democratic voters, in Wisconsin in the 2016 election. Why? Well, apparently Paul Manafort had something to do with it, you know, passing this information along. And this isn't the first time that a Republican candidate has committed treason. And this, by the way, in my opinion, is treason. You know, handing, handing you know, the ability to interfere in our elections to a, to a foreign power, particularly one that occasionally views itself or is viewed by us as hostile. Um, this isn't the first time this has happened. You know, in 1968, you had uh, Richard Nixon versus Hubert Humphrey. Hubert, Hubert Humphrey was the vice president under Lyndon Johnson. He was running for election in 68 against Richard Nixon um, for a year and a half. Lyndon Johnson had been desperately trying to end the war in Vietnam. He had figured out that it was a waste of time. He was, he was literally occasionally breaking into tears about all the dead young soldiers. I mean, he, he, had, he had reached the point where he, he kind of owned it. He was like taking, you know, uh, and, and, and he was, it was a serious effort. And they had worked out a peace deal with the North and the South, and they were going to go to Paris, and they were going to sign this deal. And Nixon reached out to the, to the South Vietnamese through Anna Chenault and said, uh, hold on, we'll give you a better deal. And, and, I mean, you know, a sabotage of the deal. You had this uh, FBI wiretap that, uh, you know, well, this, this actually, this, this clip that I'm, I'm going to read to you, I don't have, since I'm doing my show from home, I don't have the ability to play the audio for you, but soon... <laughs> But LBJ, some of our folks, including some of the old China lobby, are going to the Vietnamese embassy and saying, please notify the South Vietnamese president that if you'll hold out until November 2nd, they'll get a better deal. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. And they oughtn't be doing this, Everett. This is treason. And Senator Dirksen says, I know. But the treason works. You know, Johnson couldn't end the war because Nixon blew it up. And as a result, Nixon won the election and put a couple of Republicans on the Supreme Court. So, number one, and by the way, 22,000 more American soldiers died and an additional million Vietnamese. So then Jerry Ford, who replaced Nixon, he was an illegitimate president because he never would have been there if it hadn't been for Nixon being, you know, committing a crime. He pardoned Nixon. Next up was Ronald Reagan. Uh, the, during, during the Jimmy Carter presidency, some students had, had seized 
American hostages at the Iranian embassy were holding them. Uh, President uh, Abdul Hassan Badi Sadr ran for election in 1980, in August of 1980, on the platform of releasing the hostages. He won with 78% of the vote. He told the Christian Science Monitor, uh, you know, just explicitly, he said, after arriving in France in 1981, I told a BBC reporter that I left Iran to expose the symbiotic relationship between Khomeiniism and Reaganism. I had told Khomeini, this is the president of Iran. I had told Khomeini and Ronald Reagan had or- organized a clandestine negotiation, later, later known as the October Surprise, which prevented the attempts by myself and then U.S. President Jimmy Carter to free the hostages before the 1980 U.S. presidential election took place. The fact that they were not released tipped the results of the election in favor of Reagan. End of quote. You can read it in the Christian Science Monitor where he gave the interview. This, the pres- this was the president of Iran at the time, in 1980 when he tried to free the hostages, and the, and the, and the guys said, no, no, Reagan's going to sell us all this weaponry, which he did for six years. It was called the Iran-Contra affair, and George Herbert Walker Bush played a role in it, and, and when Lawrence Walsh was trying to nail him for it, this was after Reagan left office and Bush was the president, the screaming headline across the top of the New York Times front page, December 25th, 1992, I got a link to it in my piece over at HartmanReport.com, Quote, this is the three-line headline, all caps. The pardons. Bush pardons six in Iran affair, aborting a Weinberger trial. Prosecutor assails cover-up. We never held Bush accountable for that. George W. Bush, you know, the Supreme Court gave him the election, even though Al Gore got more votes in Florida. And Scalia's son worked for the law firm defending Bush. Did Scalia recuse himself? Thomas's wife was finding people to put in the Bush administration. Did she recuse him? Did this he recuse himself? This is the Tom Hartman program. I mean, we have had Republican president after Republican president commit crimes or even outright treason to get the White House. Isn't it time to hold at least one of them accountable? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? 
Okay, yeah. American Friends Service Committee, otherwise known as the Quakers. The Quakers. They generally, they generally put out some information regarding how the tax dollars are spent towards defense and so forth. Right. Uh, what I called to say was, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. I know it's asked by a lot of people, but it doesn't really got. We don't really get into it much. When are the American people commonly going to stand up against fascism and own up to the fact that most Americans are anti-fascist? Well, I think the last election was an example of that, Bob. But the, you know, the sad fact is that more and more Americans are standing up for fascism. And, you know, from these uh, so-called white power rallies that they just had last week or whatever they were called, um, yeah, you know, well White Lives aware. Matter, I guess. Well yeah, well aware. Yeah, I mean, you've you got that, you've got, you know, the Klan, you've got the three percenters, you've got the Proud Boys, you got, I mean, all these white supremacist groups are, are out there. Um, the American Nazi Party, uh, you know, yeah. uh, people like, and, and people who emulate them. Steve Scalise, who, who yep. bragged when yep. he ran yep. the number two Republican in the House, who bragged when he was running for Congress that he was David Duke without the baggage. Okay. I think that right. I think Americans are yep. waking up, Bob, and I think the Trump administration was part of a big wake-up call that did get a lot of people going, oh, really, really, um, not enough. And, but I think that the, the larger problem we have is the media that is feeding the growth and rise of fascism. People like Tucker Carlson on Fox News, who's, who frankly should be an embarrassment to any news network, openly talking about white replacement theory. And, you know, the, the stuff that the, that the white supremacists, uh, you know, has been their bread and butter for a century now. It's uh, disgusting. It's, it's awful. It's mind boggling. Bob in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Hey, Bob, thanks for uh, listening on our app. What's up? Tom, are you aware of any video footage of Trump actually watching the insurrection, the breach of the Capitol, and then all the destruction that took place over those many hours? There are multiple reports that he was very carefully watching the entire thing, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, none of those reports have been accompanied by somebody with a cell phone. Because that would be so valuable to add to his conversation with Kevin McCarthy, where mm. Kevin McCarthy said, who do you think, you know, I am, uh, which sort of ended, uh, you know, sort of toward the tail end of the destruction. I certainly yeah. hope something uh, is found because that could really be a, a game changer, I would think. Yeah, or maybe the NSA got it. I mean, you know, there's all those Stingray devices, devices all over all over the Capitol building, or at least they certainly seem to be that. You know, the the, the news reports that there's something like 30 of them in D.C. and and I always notice whenever I walked by the Capitol by the uh, by the White House that my phone just started you know heating up. I mean, it was just being drained of data, and I think it was because I was hooking up to Stingray devices. And if if the, if so they might have been able to capture those conversations. Uh, whether we'll ever see them or even know about them, whether they'll even ever acknowledge them, that's a whole other question. But uh, it's fascinating. And I'm, I'm with you, Bob. I, I, I want to know what happened. And, and I think the American people need to know what happened, too. Shabana. Hey, Shabana, what's up? Just want to say that okay. I love your show. Honestly, your show got me through the pandemic, listening to you every oh, day. Good. And God bless you guys and you and your wife and your family. And you guys just put out such great content that you don't hear anywhere else. I just want to say thank you and 
I agree with so many things that I learned from your show. So thank you so much. Thank you. We put a lot of work into it. But is that what you called about? Yeah, that was the main thing, because I heard you this morning. Well, Shabana, that's yeah. very kind of you. Thank you very much. I'm going to move along to um, another caller, but I okay. really appreciate Thank your you. comments. Stephen in Los Angeles. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm first on and let you know I'm a big fan, and I especially love your graphic novel, Read the, We the People. I really enjoyed that. Well, thank you. And that's a great yeah, piece that, of work. That's, thank you. Yeah. I love it. Um, I wanted to talk about the Derek Chauvin trial and how it relates to the filibuster. In that, mm -hmm. uh, in both cases, one person can upend the will of the majority, and that's you know that's downright undemocratic. You know, I yeah, I really feel in the Derek Chauvin trial that the majority will vote to convict, but that one person, you know, could undo that. You know. Mm -hmm. and but if you thing, were ever charged with murder, yeah. you would want it that way. I mean, you want absolute certainty. Well, I, I think it's right. But some but likewise, someone could come in with a pre-existing decision, you know, could not give the give the trial a fair chance because they've already made up their mind in the case of one, you know, one person. And the other thing, you know, in regards the, how that relates to the filibuster is likewise we could have a, a legislation that the majority agree on but one person could could upset that and with the filibuster the only example i ever hear is mr smith goes to washington but no one ever points out that that's a work of fiction you know i don't hear a lot of examples of how the filibuster saved us from this or that you know well, actually, when, when uh, Strom Thurmond filibustered the, either the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, I forget which one it was, I think it was the Civil Rights Act, but he, he filibustered one mm -hmm. of them for 24 hours, stood on the floor, mm -hmm. you know, peed into a bottle, down, you know, with a hose down his leg, uh, the whole bit. Um, mm -hmm. They had a vote after he was done. That was in the 60s. It was in the 70s that mm -hmm. they changed the rules of the filibuster so that if somebody wanted to filibuster something, they didn't have to stand on the floor. They didn't have to talk. All they had to do was send a note to the to the whoever was the majority leader at the time saying, I object to this, you know, to taking a vote on this legislation. And until the other side could marshal 60 people, 60 votes, that filibuster stood. So we went from, you know, the talking filibuster yeah. to this kind of silent filibuster. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, let's go back to the talking filibuster. I'm among them. I, you know, I think if, you're, if you have to have the filibuster, and, you know, there's a few uh, senator, Democratic senators who are in love with it. If you have to have the fil filibuster, do it the way, Jim, you know, the Jimmy Stewart movie yeah. did. Do it the way Strom Dur Thurmond did in 64 or 65. Yeah, I absolutely he agree. Failed. And... Yeah. And Mitch McConnell is the last person in the world who should be talking about not abolishing the filibuster, because essentially he filibustered Merrick Garland's nomination. He, one person, kept Merrick Garland from getting a fair hearing. Right. You know, that it, yeah. it's not right that, that just one person should be able to stand in the way. It should be a lot tougher than having... Yeah, the, I'm completely with you. And... and, and well, and there is a way around the majority leader not, or there is a way around the Speaker of the House not bringing a, a bill to the floor. 
and that is you get a majority of members of the House to vote, hmm. you know, uh, for a, a motion for closure, I think it's called, or closure, and, and yeah. the vote will happen. I'm not sure that there's a parallel thing in the Senate, but um, hmm. in any case, you're absolutely right, Stephen, and, you know, something should have been done. Jim in Long Beach, California. Hey, Jim, what's up? It's part of the long-range Republican plan that the Democrats don't seem to understand, from my point of view, at least the leadership. The Powell memo, Powell became the Supreme mm. Court judge. Uh, the Powell memo and the uh, Project for a New American Century and the language manipulation and framing of topics seem to have the, <clears throat> be, be taken Which the Which Gingrich brought us. Yeah, with, Al, well, with uh, Frank Luntz. Yeah. Yeah, Luntz. And so uh, the Democratic leadership doesn't seem to get it. And uh, here's my question for you, because you'll know the answer. Uh, the process, I think the long-range process is actually to have a constitutional convention, which we're very close to getting in terms of the majority of states being Republican-led, right? So all of these distractions, they're very important issues, but it's a distraction, and nobody's talking about the end game, which will be minority. The end game, rule. you're absolutely right. It has to be the frame. We can't let the other, the, the minority fascists frame the whole situation. Well, I think it even goes bigger than what you realize, Jim, because because there is this group called the Convention of States, and, and their website is conventionofstates.something. You can duck, duck, go it. They're heavily funded by a bunch of right-wing billionaires, and they have been having meetings every year in Washington, D.C. for almost a decade now, where they bring in delegates from literally every state in the union, and these people rehearse and practice as if they're doing an Article 5 convention. In order to open up the Constitution for rewrites, you have to have 34, I believe it is, of the states. You have to have three quarters of the states. They are at 31 or 32 states right now that have passed resolutions through their legislatures calling for opening the Constitution so it can be written. So things like the Supreme Court decision that money is speech or that corporations are people or that unions can be attacked or that uh, civil rights don't really matter. All of those Supreme Court decisions that we're seeing from right-wing Supreme Court justices, they could be overturned if the court takes you know, a different tact, if it gets expanded to 13 people like Ed Markey is proposing. Although, you know, apparently that's not going to happen. But they can't be overturned if they get written into the Constitution. And that's what these guys are trying to do. They're trying to write it into the Constitution. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.